Hello, and welcome to another edition of Brussels Sprouts. I'm Andrea Kendall-Taylor. And I'm Jim Townsend. And we're so glad you can join us. Uh, I am just back from a wonderful week at the beach, um, but here we are jumping straight back into things. And this week, we're going to spend one last episode uh, talking about President Biden's series of summits in Europe. Uh, Of course, and as expected, President Biden took the opportunity to praise the Transatlantic Alliance and assure Europeans that the United States is back, which is really no small thing after the previous uh, administration's abuse of the alliance. Um, But beyond the flurry of diplomatic attention, there's still questions about what the summits actually achieved. Um, Looking forward, questions about what concrete actions the United States and Europe might take to strengthen the alliance and better address Russian and Chinese challenges. And so to get at some of these questions, to put the summits in context and talk about where we go from here, we're really excited to welcome two fantastic guests. We have Jeremy Shapiro and Amy Mackinnon on the podcast. Welcome to you both. Thanks. Um, Very quick, um, by way of introduction, um, Jeremy Shapiro is the research director of the European Council on Foreign Relations, as well as a non-resident fellow at the Center on the United States and Europe at the Brookings Institution. And prior to Brookings, Jeremy was a member of the U.S. State Department's policy planning staff and previously a senior advisor to Assistant Secretary of State for European and Eurasian Affairs, Philip Gordon. And Amy is a national security and intelligence reporter at Foreign Policy, and she's reported from across Eastern Europe and was previously based in Moscow and in Tbilisi um, as senior editor for the crisis reporting site, uh, Cauda Story. Okay, so with that, with introductions behind us, maybe we can just start with the extremely broad question to kick to both of you, which is basically, what is your takeaway um, from all of these summits? How did they go? And Jeremy, maybe we can start with you and you can talk a little bit about the NATO and EU summits. And then Amy, um, you can build on anything Jeremy has to say, but also to hear your thoughts on how the Geneva summit went. So Jeremy, over to you. Yeah, thanks. Um and thanks for having me. Look, the optics of these summits were kind of amazing. And I, it, it, it stands really in great contrast to the, you know, the previous administration, which I think where we need to start after all, because those, those things were, uh, when, when Trump went to Europe, it was like a sort of NASCAR race. I mean, you know, people just went to see the, the pileups and they eventually came. Um, and, and it was, it was so much amateur hour. And I think maybe Amy will have something similar to say about the Putin summit relative to Helsinki. Um, so the optics of these things were great. I mean, it was, it was just, I think it was nice for everybody involved. It was certainly nice for me to see a professional American administration going to Europe and to orchestrating a trip along entirely normal lines. Um, so uh, the problem with that, and, and, you know, you could really see this at the U S NATO's at the U at the NATO summit at the U S EU summit, the European leaders were, so thrilled by not having to deal with Trump anymore, not having to feel like they were about to have a six car pileup, uh, that they were almost blushing with praise, uh, for Biden. And they, and they were very welcoming to his message. So, you know, all of that is great, but I think unfortunately that's a bit of a low bar. Uh, it's admittedly the bar that the Trump administration set. Uh, but you know, what I would have loved to see, what I, you know, in my sort of deep in my transatlanticist heart is something that would move beyond 
thinking about, uh, you know, getting back to the good optics of 2016 and trying to create a new, more balanced transatlantic relationship in which Europeans take on more burdens and Americans give up more authority. Uh, And I didn't really see them advancing the ball on that. To, To a large degree, I think that because they were so excited to get rid of Trump and so excited to be able to return to the normal forms that they forgot on a certain level or didn't bother to think about what, how they can make uh, the U.S.-European alliance, NATO, U.S.-EU relationship, the individual bilateral relationships more fit for purpose in a world in which the United States is more fundamentally interested in China and in which Europe has to really be thinking about how it can get its own act together to deal with issues like Russia. And I didn't see, uh, I saw some, you know, minor steps in that regard. I saw people talking about it, but I didn't see anything really advancing that ball very far. Right before we come to Amy, Jeremy, just one more question, because before the summits, you wrote a really fantastic op-ed that talked a little bit about kind of some of the residual and the underlying tensions, fissures, kind of points of friction in the transatlantic relationship. Do you think that the, I mean, maybe you can talk a little bit about those. So even though, as you're saying, you know, everyone was so happy to see Biden back, as you, you know, discuss in your piece, there's still questions about whether or not he's the anomaly and what happens in four years and et cetera. So I wonder, can you maybe just talk to us a little bit about, even though on the surface, you know, everyone was so happy to welcome Biden, um, what you see as some of the underlying tensions that still exist and whether or not you think actually in the summits, any of those were actually addressed or if you think all of those same challenges and issues are persisting beyond the summits. I think you can sort of divide this stuff uh, in very think tank fashion. into sort of three baskets. Um, There is the, uh, there is the, when you talk about sort of underlying tensions, there are the sort of, age-old tensions in the U.S.-European relations around issues like Boeing, Airbus, and in this sort of transatlantic economic relationship. And you know what? I, I know that people like to focus on those things, but to me, those, those types of issues were always, uh, in, in some sense, a signal of the strength uh, of the transatlantic relationship. Uh, it, the fact that there were disputes about things like uh, uh, transatlantic trade negotiations and Boeing Airbus was a demonstration that the relationship was important to both sides and the way in which they were solving them through the WTO, through negotiations was a, was evidence of a mature relationship. I think they made a fair amount of progress on that. They kicked Boeing Airbus, uh, into the long grass for five years would be better to solve it. Uh, and I think that they've demonstrated that they at least have a will to move forward on and a process for moving forward on some of the other things. The, the more important basket, I think, is this issue of balance, is this issue of thinking about how to create a, uh, a, a transatlantic relationship in which Europeans are interested in contributing more uh, and which Americans are able to concentrate uh, elsewhere um, and because the Europeans are taking care of their own neighborhood. And that's a tricky one, I think. And you saw a little bit of advance on that just because, for example, the, the U.S. was a little bit more leaning into um, EU defense arrangements. I would say that that was mostly uh, declaratory, but it was still important for that. Um, I don't think that they, I don't think that you saw much advance on that, which is what I was sort of getting at. Um, 
third basket. I can't, I can't now remember. So I'll come back to that. Perfect. Okay. We'll come back to it. Um, okay, so, you know, the way it was orchestrated, Amy, obviously, you know, President Biden is meeting with allies and partners and the ideas that then he has, the, you know, the strength of the alliances at his back as he goes into the meeting with, with President Putin in Geneva. Um, tell us a little bit about what was most interesting, if there was anything that you found interesting about that summit and kind of your, your general takeaway and whether, you know, you think it was a success for President Biden. I mean, I think the the lowest hanging fruit takeaway, um, but that it's worth remarking on is just the difference in tone from the Helsinki, everything, the difference in absolutely everything compared to the Helsinki summit. I started at Foreign Policy about a month before the Helsinki summit. And I remember afterwards, after it was all over, my editor stopped me in the corridor and he was like, so how did it go? Like anything, anything to write up? And it, it was so, you know, off the charts that I didn't even know where to where to start. I didn't know how to write the story because it was so off the charts. And then I kind of struggled with the with the takeaway story after um, the Geneva summit, but for the opposite reason, because it was very, it was it was as expected. There was, you know, the administration I think was very careful to set expectations that there was going to be no no breakthrough. They weren't going to uh, come out of this hugging. Um, and that's, you know, that and that's what we got. You know, there was they were very realistic about what, if anything, could come out of this. Um, and you know they were very careful from the from day one of the administration to say that you know there was not going to be a reset with Russia, and that's not what we've seen. But I did this did appear to be an attempt to kind of draw a line in the sand, and you know maybe not reach a hand out to Russia, but just to say you know there is a door there that is open, and if you want to take it, it is there to kind of work on this relationship. Um, and I think that also gives them the opportunity later on in time, if the Russians don't take that avenue, to to then pursue a much um, a much firmer course. Um, and there were, of course, some takeaways. There was the um, the agreement to to restart strategic stability talks, and I think one of the more interesting things, which didn't get as much play, was this list of sixteen cybersecurity major infrastructure targets that that Biden handed Putin. And I know he got a lot of a lot of uh, critique from that from the Republicans of handing handing Putin a hit list. But I, you don't have to be the SVR to know, like I. You know, I'm not an expert on this. I could pretty much rattle you off a list of what's probably important to the U.S. in terms of infrastructure. Um, and I, you know, I thought that was a that got kind of slid by to get as much attention. But I thought it was an important kind of in looking at it from a deterrence perspective to 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 list these things off and say and and to draw that red line and to say and if you hit this there will be consequences he made that um thin, thinly veiled threat threat uh, in the press conference where he said and i asked putin you know how would you feel if if we hit one of your pipelines um and i i'm sure that will have uh, have resonated in moscow one question i had about that was i don't think we've seen that list or certainly not the, the exact copy that was handed over um is how specific this was in terms of targets i mean is this a bullet point list like like how do you define transport you know where do you draw the lines in that and as we know um what the kremlin has a tendency to do is it nibbles around the edges to see exactly where those lines are and so uh, curious to see how that's going to play out in, in uh uh in the future but i think biden summed up the summit uh best in his press conference at the end when he said the proof of the pudding is in the eating and so i think the history is yet to be written as to whether or not this summit was a success um but uh a marked departure from from the helsinki summit for sure i was able to write the takeaways this time yeah trump was uh good for journalists and bad for the world <laughs> it was a busy few years yeah <laughs> 
Well, thank you all both very much for those uh, those interventions, if you will. The, the, the fabulous. And I, I agree with all of them. And let me, we were talking about lists uh, just a second ago with Amy uh, that going to being provided to Putin. Let's talk about another list. Uh, this is a list that the allies agreed to at NATO, the communique. Uh, and I admittedly, the communique uh, has the interests of a maybe two or three people. Uh, no one really reads them. Uh, and frankly, just to say that the communiques, the importance of those is not so much the end result as it is the process of all the nations arguing and debating and finally setting down something that everyone can agree on. It's the process is almost more important than the paper itself. But uh, Jeremy, I, I, as, I, as I remember, I think you told me that you actually have read it. Uh, and, uh, and I've read a, a bit of it. I haven't read the whole thing. It's not a meal you take in one sitting, but I was a little surprised. There seemed to be a lot of hoopla, uh, coming out of, of the NATO summit. And, 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 and I, and like you've said, I think the optics of it is great. The unity of it is great. The family photo, which is so important to show that unity is great. But, um, the communique, as I went through it, I didn't see a lot of things that allies definitely agreed on. There's a lot of aspirations there. We aim to do this. We will talk further about, you know, there, they seem to have papered over a lot of big problems, uh, that, uh, that uh, NATO is going to have to wrestle with in the coming months to actually put meat on the bones of America's back. If the U.S. wants to get um, NATO uh, more involved in dealing with the rise of China, and, and if NATO wants to bring allies along to do some of the things that the Secretary General laid out that he wanted to do, we've got a lot of work ahead of us. Because from reading that communique, I think there was a lot of, as I said, a lot of uh, We'll talk about it further rather than decisions. Did you, What did you think? Uh, well, let me correct the record first a little bit. I didn't finish the NATO communique. I've never met anybody who finished this NATO <laughs> communique. I think I collapsed into a pool of drool about halfway through. Uh, but when I woke up, I did have a roughly similar uh, view that, that, that you did. I mean, you know, I think it... Uh, Let's understand where we are. I mean, uh, we're, we're sort of three or four months into the new administration. Um, they clearly, uh, uh, you know, went to Europe because they because they were scheduled to go to Europe. Um, and whatever plans they have for NATO, um, they haven't really developed them yet. I mean, they barely they don't even have an assistant secretary for Europe. Uh, they don't have a they don't have his equivalent in the Pentagon or her equivalent in the Pentagon. They don't have a lot of the people in place who would really need to have developed uh, these plans. Um, I don't think that they exclude them, but I think it's, it, when you get to the China point, I think that that's really, uh, that's really central to the, to the, what seems to me the way the administration is looking at this. And I don't think they've answered a lot of the questions for themselves about where Europe and or NATO fits into the, the China struggle, which is clearly becoming the sort of defining motif of the Biden administration foreign policy. And probably appropriately so. Um, so they go, they go to Europe and they say, gee, it's really nice to be here in, in Brussels. Let's talk about China. Uh, it's just on our mind. Uh, and they talk about China and they, and the Europeans are like, Jesus Christ, the Americans are, you know, they're, they're obsessed with China. They think it's a new Cold War. You know, we understand that the Chinese are, are incredibly annoying. Uh, and that they're a problem and that they're even a rival. But uh, it just kind of seems like one of those American crusades where for some reason we're going to, 10 years from now, we're going to find ourselves in a desert that we've never heard of getting killed. 
Um, so let's, let's sort of, let's sort of, you know, absorb this a little bit. Let's agree to talk about it. Uh, let's try to temper the Americans, uh, crusading enthusiasm and, and, you know, and smarten up their policy. The Americans look at that and they're like, Oh God, um, you know, we're, we're doing this. Um, you know, we want all your help at the very least. Let's have some optics, uh, uh, it, it, at the best, let's really, you know, get full European compliance, but they don't, but they're not really expecting that. Um, and I think that they understand at this point that Europe is not the central front in the fight against China. It's an important front, but it's not the central front. Uh, they're going to try to get as much as they can out of it, but I don't think they've decided, and I don't, I wouldn't even know it to advise them about whether really NATO is particularly useful for that beyond the sort of vague statements that you saw in that communique, uh, or whether even they're going to get, it's worth investing a lot of effort in even the individual European countries to get much more than, you know, the occasional ship visit um, and, uh, and, you know, trying to get them to not invest in, in not, you know, have a 5G network and that kind of thing. Uh, I think that, there is a, a not a huge level of ambition there. Uh, there's some, and I think we saw that. But I, I, I get the impression that they feel like their crusade against China is going to have a not a not it, Europe isn't going to have a central role in that. So maybe just to pick up, I want to talk about like these the kind of two adversaries that the United States came to Europe to talk about. So China is one, and then Amy will come to Russia because there's been so many interesting things that have happened in the wake of the post-Putin summit on the Russia front in Europe. But but Jeremy, just on the China piece, um, you're, you're right. I think, you know, they came to these summits with China. It was China climate COVID, right? So China was one of the three key priorities that they wanted to talk about in all of these venues. It was a central theme in the NATO summit. They already have the US-EU dialogue on China. My sense is that China is a major theme that's kind of underpinning and permeating the Trade and Technology Council. I mean, do you do you think that the that the that the US believes they can bring Europe along. So that's kind of question one. I mean, or do you, I don't know, what, what do you think that the U.S. expects from Europe? And two, you know, of course, there was some consensus in some of the NATO documents about, you know, elevating the role of China in the NATO framework. But then we had comments in the immediate aftermath of the NATO summit from both Merkel and Macron that kind of basically cast doubt on whether China should be such a focus of NATO. So where do, do you think that, that Europe is coming along and converging with the United States view of China as a major threat? Or do you, you, you or are there more divisions than the, than the United States and Washington are realizing? I would say, I think the sentiment on this side of the Atlantic is that there is more and more convergence, that Europe is coming along and that we're getting closer and that we can therefore do more on the China front. But how, how accurate do you think that that really is? I mean, it's, there is more convergence. Uh, uh, you know, the, the change, you know, I usually live in Europe, not, not this year, but previous, <laughs> the previous five years I've lived in Europe and the change in the perspective on China and Europe in the last five years is pretty profound. My, my one of my ECFR colleagues, Yanko Ortel, wrote a uh, really, really, really great piece on that. And, you know, most of that is the result of Chinese behavior, which is like spectacularly obnoxious. Um, 
So uh, there is a great sense that Europe is a is a is a, is a growing. I mean that China is a growing problem for Europe, particularly on the economic front. Uh, I think in Germany there's something close to panic about the Chinese industrial plans and their uh, and their China 2025 plans, which take square aim at that German export industries and Germany's a big exporter to China. So there's worry about. Uh, Chinese economic practices. There's worried about Chinese. There's worried about China's geopolitical practices. Uh, but I mean, I think you have to understand what the limits of that are. I think we saw that after the summit. Um, the when, when Americans see a problem like this, they embark on a massive uh, campaign, often generational, to solve it. Um, that's our approach to the Cold War. That's our approach to uh, the war on terror. Uh, and and I, to a degree, I think that reflects our mobilization difficulties, and at the very least, our domestic political culture. Europeans look at a problem like this, which is very far away, um, and think about how to to manage it and to deal with it. And they become very un uncomfortable with America's crusading impulses. Um, and they are very interested, and I think in not separating themselves from the Americans, uh, rhetorically engaging with the Americans, getting good optics on this. Um, but also they want to think about tempering American enthusiasms and even more importantly, contributing as little as possible to American uh, crusades. And I think that that's what you, that's the sort of dynamic. And by the way, this is a, an old dynamic in the transatlantic relationship. It dated into the Cold War, uh, certainly very strongly in the post-Cold War. If you look at the, the sort of debates around Afghanistan, Iraq, the Balkans, they all have this dynamic where the Americans are pushing forward, the Europeans kind of agree, but are also trying to temper enthusiasm and, and to limit their own contributions. Um, and uh, so I think you saw that dynamic in, with China in this visit uh, where the Americans came over, they, got, they had a big pitch about how horrible China was. The Europeans sort of said, we kind of agree, but then out the back door said, yeah, but you know, the Americans are a little bit crazy about this. Let's try to temper them. Let's try to, let's try not to start a new cold war. Let's try to, um, uh, you know, maintain our very important economic relationships and avoid decoupling, uh, and all that kind of thing. So that was the sort of European two-step that you're referring to the summits, the summits seemed great. Uh, but, the, the French, the Italians, the Germans all had uh, moments in the, in the week after Bi uh, Biden, the summit with Biden, where they essentially said, you know, we're not going the full Monty. Yeah, no, I, I agree. So those divisions are there. And that brings up the other issue of Russia, where kind of in the immediate aftermath of the Geneva summit, you know, divisions were on full display within Europe after Merkel and Macron proposed a summit between European leaders and Putin. So Amy, I don't know if you can tell us a little bit about that and kind of where, I mean, that, that makes it hard for the United States, right? To chart a course on Russia without the kind of more consensus amongst Europeans, which from the Biden administration's perspective has been a really important pillar, I think, of their approach to Russia is that they wanna do it in lockstep and more coordination with Europe. But now we're seeing just not not now, but this is a fresh reminder of just how divided Europe is over over the Russia question. So I don't know if you want to just tell us a little bit about kind of how what you know what happened and kind of where you see Europe on the Russia question. I mean, 
you know, Biden has been very clear about trying to strike a kind of uh, an alliance of, of democracies to push back against the uh, major authoritarian powers of, of China and Russia. And of course, the kind of the natural first place to look for that is, is Europe. Um, but I think it's going to be interesting to see how I mean, the Europeans have Russia on their doorstep. Like, it's a fundamentally more of an existential threat than it is than it is for the United States. And there's also, you know, the question of divisions within Europe. I mean, over Nord Stream two, which has now become su such a lightning rod. Then also the divisions between East and Western Europe. Um, whether, you know, I think Eastern. My sense is is, is speaking to kind of speaking to Eastern Europeans at the moment is they feel like the, the Biden administration is is talking the talk, but not necessarily walking the walk in terms of in terms of backing up allies in the region. And I think particularly the Ukrainians are feeling a little bit out on a limb. We've seen some uh, interesting statements from Zelensky recently where it almost seems like he's trying to kind of to signal to, to Biden through the press. And so I think that's going to be, I mean, the Europeans also have, you know, domestically within Europe, I think, have that question to deal with is how they get their own house in, in, in order and in, in, in making, you know, the Eastern European allies feel reassured, but also dealing with this, you know, very real present threat that you just can't ignore Russia. It's right there on the doorstep and forging some kind of a, of, of a working relationship. And the other thing is, I would say, I think another challenge just on, on both sides of the Atlantic is, is how incredibly politicized the question of Russia has become. There's so much intense media scrutiny, and I, as a journalist, am part of that. Um, and for good reason, you know, Russia uh, is up to all kinds of really nefarious, dirty tricks, both in the US and across Europe, and to an extreme degree, you know, poisoning poisoning squads, assassinations, you know, it, it, it is up there. But um, I, think, I think that makes, it's a tricky public sphere, I think, as well, to be operating in. It, when trying to, to deal on a policy level with Moscow. One quick follow-up. Jeremy, do you think that the Europeans are frustrated that we keep wanting to talk about China, 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 when, when, it, when it is Russia that is their number one you know, security challenge? Is there a disconnect? Are we kind of talking past one another? Is there frustration that the U.S. is kind of miss, miss, missing its focus in what it's talking to Europe about? Or... Are, do they, are they kind of on board? Uh, well, there's frustration in Eastern Europe on that point. Um, I'm not so sure that there's frustration in Western Europe on it. Um, the, uh, the, I think um, the, particularly the Germans, but the, the French as well, uh, don't really find the American interventions on Russia terribly helpful. Um, uh, I don't think they minded what happened this this time, but very often, I think they figure they they find that uh, an excessive American attention on on Russia isn't helpful uh, isn't helpful for them to create the consensus. And I think that this gets to the point, you know, it's uh, and I think it's been present in this conversation too, which is that it's the American duty to forge uh, uh, a path on Russia and the European uh, fate to sort of either join or not join that path. And I think uh, that. You know, in a sort of world in which the United States foreign policy is focused on China, that doesn't make any sense from either side. Um, and I think you you've seen you you've seen that the Biden administration seems schizophrenic on this point, right? They 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 put all of their attention on on China, but they but they continually indicate or at least signal to the Europeans that they're also going to take responsibility for Russia. Um, and to me, it seems to be, it, it seems like they should, what they should be saying to the Eastern Europeans, which 
you know, if at times they are, is, you know, this is not something, this is not our biggest priority right now. We support you, but, you know, we're far away and you better make, you better make common cause with the Germans and the French and the British to do this because we're really not going to be reliable on this question. We can't be. Um, that's the reality of the American geopolitical position right now. But I think there's, there's a reluctance uh, for very strong historic reasons to say that. And that is what, uh, to a large degree, creates these European divisions. Because the Europeans are not going to get together on Russia unless they absolutely have to. And from an Eastern European perspective, particularly, the thing that makes them not have to is the, that, that ever-present hope that the Americans will be their ally instead of the Germans and the French. They vastly prefer that. Honestly, I'm not entirely sure why, but I think they would have some explanations. But anyway, they do. Um, and I think well, there hasn't been enough effort on uh, any American administration uh, to sort of say to them, um, gee, you know, uh, this is not going to be our central priority. We will back you up, but we, we need to get on board with your plan, not you get on board with ours. Uh, so interesting. I, I, my, my question for you all has changed two or three times just over the past minute. <laughs> let me, let me just, let me just try to be so interesting, Jim. It's my, face. well, I know that you're not, we're going to have trouble with you next time. We're going to have to have uh, two or three podcasts just to get down to all the interesting things. But, but um, you know, it sounds almost like uh, Jeremy, from what you were just saying that we would be doing everyone a favor, including ourselves. If we said to the allies at some point, look, we're going to have to have a rebalancing here in terms of who does what. Uh, we've got problems in the Pacific. If we're just looking at the military picture only, we're going to, we, the U.S., are going to have to really redouble our efforts to uh, shore up deterrence in the Pacific against China over the next 10, 15, 20 years. We're not going to leave Europe. We're not going to abandon you guys. We're not going to do what we did uh, after the end of the Cold War and start pulling U.S. forces out. But what we're going to need for you Europeans to do is to really up your game so that you can play more of a role to, with, to deter Russia. Uh, we're going to be there. We're going to be part of this as, as well. But, uh, Jeremy, kind of as you were saying, we would tell everyone you've got to do more because we cannot do both the lead effort in Europe against Russia and the lead effort in the Indo-Pacific against the Chinese. We're going to have to have a rebalance of effort. And if we said that, maybe that would drive the Europeans uh, to, 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 uh, uh, to work together more closely in terms of a European military capability uh, to be able to take on more of that military burden in Europe. So, so it's almost like we, we need to be upfront about that and say we're going to need to have a rebalance. So I'll just say that, but let me let me shift gears though to take us back to Cornwall. You know what was interesting there is that that was the that was a very interesting European political stage, where we saw Merkel doing her bow as the curtain began to close on her on her time astride the European political scene. Uh, that was her last G7, and you saw uh, replacing that this uh, very interesting optic. Of, of Macron and uh, and Biden sitting by that little cafe table by the sea and shaking hands and talking. And you began to see the shifting of the tectonic plates a bit. We've got elections, of course, in Germany coming up. Uh, Macron himself next year will be up. Uh, and so um, just wondering what both of you saw in terms of the European politics there at Cornwall and then and subsequently at NATO. 
um, as uh, Merkel began to exit stage right, uh, and Macron found him will find himself at least for the next year um, by himself up there, uh, trying to make friends with a new uh, German government, uh, whatever comes together. And Biden will become uh, not just his new friend, but someone he's going to, you know, uh, be working more closely with. What did you all take away in terms of the politics? Jeremy, why don't you go and then Amy? Uh, sure. Um, you know, this is the sort of post-Merkel question, I guess. I've been struggling with the post-Merkel question. Merkel is coming to Washington, I think, on the 15th of July for uh, a festschrift, I guess, is the appropriate German word. Uh, and I think um, it's, she has uh, sort of, uh, certainly in the American mind, but I think in a lot of minds, come to sort of define European politics in the last 10 years. She's been in power for, for since 2005. Um, and, but, but particularly since the financial crisis, she's sort of been the face of Europe. And, um, and you know, moving beyond her, I think, is going to be a little bit traumatic. To be honest with you, I think it's so traumatic that I'm not really sure that we're going to do it. Um, uh, I have this sort of idea that maybe Merkel isn't leaving power. Uh, and, and we'll, we'll have to see after, we'll have to see after the German election, but I can Im imagine some scenarios where, where she doesn't, but putting that aside for the moment, I think that the operating assumption is that she will. I don't think it's going to fundamentally change how, uh, certainly the Americans approach Europe. You can see in the Biden administration's approach, uh, uh, a really very central understanding that Germany is central to creating any sort of geopolitical or organized Europe and that, and that shifting Germany is, uh, into a, into a, more of into a different mindset is the most critical part of long-term American policy in Europe. And I think, uh, they, they view, uh, Merkel has been, you know, useful for that and that she's such a steadying influence, but frustrating for that because she, uh, which is the other side of the coin, she would never take any, any um, uh, risks with anything. Um, she took one risk in 2015 with the immigration crisis and she appears to have regretted it. And, you know, um, uh, and she was, uh, you know, and it, it, it was both her greatest strength and her greatest weakness. So I wouldn't gainsay it. She left, she stayed in power for 16 years, but there is an opportunity here uh, to be a little bit, to, to try to find in a, uh, well, let's put it this way. In, in Macron, you had, uh, an innovative, exciting leader who read, who led the wrong country. Uh, and in Merkel, you had a dull, uh, careful leader who led the right country. And maybe there's an opportunity to bring those two things together. And I think you see that in the sort of cultivation of Macron and, um, and, and the thinking about how to, uh, operate with Germany once Merkel leaves. And that I can tell you with great certainty that that's certainly how the French see it. Um, that they really see, uh, that it, as, as impressive and useful and friendly as Merkel has been to France, uh, there are some new opportunities here with a leader who might be, uh, more open to Macron's suasion. We'll see if that's true. Uh, because, um, Armin Laschet is, uh, seems like, you know, Merkel without the spine, which is impressive. Um, uh, but, you know, if the Greens 
take the foreign ministry or the or even the chancellery. Uh, I think there's a lot more options there. They're 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 intriguing uh, as a potential leader of of Germany. They have from a, an American or a French standpoint, they have been, uh, they have advantages and disadvantages. But it does open up a lot more possibilities. Right, Amy. Well, Jeremy is a hard act to follow on Europe, so I'm not going to try. <laughs> I think I, 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 I completely agree with his assessment, and I will, I will leave it there. You maybe, Amy, just to follow up on that one. I mean, I don't know if you want to talk about then where we go on Russia. And you had that, you know, you brought up Biden's great quote that the proof of the the proof of the pudding is in the eating, or what, however that saying goes. Kind of as the dynamic shift also in Germany, um, and then it, it, how to into to the extent that that shifts things in Europe. Do you what do you see in terms? You know, how optimistic are you about transatlantic a transatlantic approach to Russia? Do you think with Merkel's departure, it opens up new possibilities of greater consensus? I mean, I think if it's Laschet, maybe it doesn't, as as Jeremy was maybe alluding to. But kind of looking forward, so we have the post-summit and some changing dynamics in Europe. How optimistic are you that the Biden administration will be able to chart a more cohesive approach to Russia with Europe? I mean, certainly more optimistic than I was during the Trump administration. Um, but as we discussed at the beginning, that was a low bar. I think we're already seeing very kind of positive, warm signals from the Biden administration on things like uh, you know, working together, pushing back against authoritarian states. And I thought that the uh, the announcement a few weeks ago that they view kleptocracy as a national security priority, I think that is somewhere where there is a lot of ripe work uh, with the Europeans and particularly the UK, which is now finally kind of turning its attention to to London being just this horrific money laundering hub. And so I, I'm I'm fairly optimistic, and I think you've seen a kind of an early test case with Belarus, the the way in which sanctions have been have, have been rolled out in, in coordination with European allies. I think that uh, sets a positive tone that you know when it comes to another inevitable round of Russia sanctions, that, that there'll be there'll be scope for collaboration there. Um, I think. I mean, I think that I mean the ultimate question I think is though is how much can be done on on russia right like i don't envy uh policymakers on either side of the atlantic having to having to make these decisions because you know multiple rounds of sanctions putin is still going to be continue to be a disruptive leader um and he's only i think going to grow more disruptive as the regime feels more embattled the longer he stays in power i think we're certainly going to see more and more disruptive activity ahead of the elections in in september um and uh and it's a headache all right, I think we're almost at time and maybe just to kind of one last question, kind of thinking about, again, more forward looking, if either of you have advice to the Biden administration and how they approach Europe. I mean, one of the things I've been thinking a lot about is, you know, clearly the Biden administration has made democracy and human rights kind of the centerpiece of foreign policy, especially in the China challenge. They've talked a lot about this competition between systems, a competition between democracy and authoritarianism. Jeremy, how effective do you think that is with the Europeans, or is it actually off-putting? Um, and does it, you know, send some Europeans wanting to head for the hills to view this in such kind of grand ideological terms? Would the Biden administration be better off 
talking, talking in more practical terms, you know, working through, I guess, the Trade and Technology Council, working through um, the US-EU Council on much more kind of pragmatic steps. That, so I guess that's the background to my question of, you know, do you have advice for the Biden administration um, looking to, to catalyze and build momentum in the transatlantic relationship? Uh, okay. Um, look, I think that my advice to them, particularly when it comes to the transatlantic relationship, is to be thinking about building a geopolitical Europe, building a more balanced partnership, and and that means actually sometimes not having um, initiatives, uh, or at least following European initiatives. I think actually Belarus was perhaps the template for that. I don't know if it was there. It was how they informed them. But you didn't see the Americans coming out and leading that response. You, you saw them sort of letting the Europeans do that and then jumping on board with what the Europeans did. Uh, and to me, that is the template of how they want it. They should be dealing with Europe on, on any question that is a sort of European regional question. Um, and that definitely includes Russia. I think that's a very difficult lift for the United States when it comes to a lot of Russia issues. On the sort of China ideology point, I, I think that, the, you know, uh, most Europeans are uncomfortable with that. The British seem to like it, but I think the rest uh, generally um, uh, are not thrilled with that. And what they see when the Americans do that is this uh, American crusading zeal that I talked about. Um, uh, but, you know, uh, to be honest with you, I'm not sure that that means the Americans shouldn't do it. It, 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 is, it is an impediment for working with the Europeans, and it does cause them uh, to roll their eyes a little bit and suck a little bit harder on that Galois. But um, fundamentally, it's, it's what the United States needs um, in its own domestic politics to create the, the, the level of mobilization, which is quite hard for a country which is so separated from geopolitical problems to achieve. And so that's why we've always done it. Uh, we haven't done it for the Europeans or against the Europeans. Um, and I think um, I think it's it's not helpful, but we can get beyond it uh, because the Europeans have gotten to the point where they sort of understand this stuff, and we'll just try to temper it and um, and you know work through these councils to do the real work. Amy, anything you want to add on the Russia front? You kind of raised some of the issues, like you said, the Belarus test case and letting Europe lead in some cases. I know you talked about anti-corruption, but anything you would highlight in terms of words of advice for a Biden administration looking for more a more coordinated response to Russia? I think I've, I have been puzzled, as I said before, why there has not been more of a kind of full-throated, robust support for Eastern Europe. I think that a lot of the things that the Biden administration has outlined as its priorities, you know, cutting back on, on, on kleptocracy, um, defending democracy and human rights, Eastern Europe, and, you know, even pushing back against China, checking authoritarian states, you can do all of that in Eastern Europe. Um, there, and there is a, there, there are willing and receptive policymakers in that region. Um, you know, there, they're caught between a revanchist Russia, China, who's offering massive infrastructure loans and investment. Um, the, the previous administration offered, I think it was $1 billion to the Three Seas Initiative. I, I'm not sure what's happening with that funding. You know, Nord Stream 2, there's... I think you can, you, can, you can chalk up some very quick and easy wins by, you know, by really focusing on that. And supporting, uh, you know, 
you know, if your if your goal is to support democracy and push back against authoritarianism, Eastern Europe is, you know, Hungary, Czech Republic, Poland, you know, you, you are seeing these kind of like nativist nationalists surging. I mean, it's been going on for years now, but like that is a very easy test ground where I think you will find a lot of, of, of reception amongst publics and amongst certain certain aspects of, of the policy sphere. I think Jim has a last question. So Andrea has been on vacation for a week at the beach, and so she's all relaxed and is uh, is so um, generous with uh, with having me ask one last question. So Andrea, thank you for that. Um, and this is we are short of time, so this is a one sentence uh, answer from both of you. Uh, and the uh, question is. You know, um, there's there was all at the beginning of the the summits. There was this big discussion, as there always seems to have been, uh, which is, so do the do the Europeans really think the Americans are back, or are they holding their breath and expecting uh, that Trump could come back, uh, or the midterms could turn the wrong way and the Democrats lose uh, the the House and the Senate, and so. Really, they're holding their breath. Uh, so the summits are now behind us, and uh, we're moving forward. And there was, uh, on both sides of the Atlantic, a great feeling of accomplishment. So my question for you all, uh, when the lights go down in Europe and these uh, decision makers are in bed, do their eyes pop open at 3 a.m.? And are they worried that, in fact, uh, that was all a mirage and the Americans might not be back? Uh, and so they should hedge their bets or are, do they, uh, their eyes pop open and, but in fact, they're filled with confidence that in that America is back and it's, we're going off in a great new trajectory and Donald Trump is in the rearview mirror. So one sentence, what do these, uh, officials think at three in the morning when their eyes pop open? I would say if their eyes, when their eyes pop open, I think they, they should be concerned still. I... I personally do do not feel convinced that the Trump era is entirely in the rearview mirror, and I think I think the Europeans are not convinced fully either. Jeremy, yeah, I mean, my lawyers tell me I'm supposed to stop sneaking into European leaders' bedrooms at three a.m. So I don't know for certain, but um, uh, every single conversation I've had with uh, a European official uh, since the Biden election has expressed the fear that Trump will uh, or someone like him will come back. Um, and I don't, I can entirely can understand why, because I'm desperately afraid of it as well. Uh, what's interesting, however, is just how little, despite that realization, just how little hedging is going on. I, I, it's difficult for me to point to any, uh, you hear them talk about it a lot, but I never really see it. Uh, so, uh, it's definitely true that they're afraid of it, but what they're doing about it, I have no idea. Perfect. Thank you. Yeah, those were, were great answers. Um, yeah, I I mean, I yeah, that fear, I think, is just at the top of every conversation that we have as well. Um, and and as, as both of you articulated, it's not without reason. Um, and I do, I find myself kind of fluctuating a little. It's a little bit of whiplash. I find myself being really optimistic about where we're headed in the transatlantic relationship and then sometimes just kind of being thrown in the opposite direction and really concerned that, you know, if under the Biden administration with one of the most transatlantic presidents we've had in a very long time, we can't make more concrete actions and kind of lock in some progress on shared challenges that, you know, we're in trouble. If we can't do it now, then when can we do it? So I, I, I find myself just kind of swinging between 
those two. Um, and that's why having conversations with smart folks like you guys is really important. And what this podcast is all about, just trying to make sense of, of where we're headed. So I just want to thank both of you for joining us. Thank you, Jeremy. And thank you, Amy. This was a really fantastic discussion. Um, and hopefully we'll have a chance to do it again soon.